Today we're going to get right into our topic. In recent weeks and days, we've had uh, several folks challenge us that we're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we want to devote this session to a discussion of the gospel. What is it? How does it save us? How do we believe it? And so on and so forth. And in order to frame this topic, Brother Zach is going to start us off with some common points that we share with most believers, most evangelical believers at least. And then I'm going to get into an outline of how we perceive the gospel. After Brother Zach is completed and I'm done, Brother Kevin is going to pepper us with some questions again. And he's going to try to help us find the gaps in what we've presented so that we can fill it in, uh, make it a little more complete. So I'm going to go ahead and ask Brother Zach to uh, give us the common ground. Amen. So the intention of this, as mentioned, is just to make sure that there's not all those stumbling blocks in the mind that are saying, well, yeah, but they don't believe this or they don't believe this. We really want to take a six-foot wall and make it a six-inch hurdle so that everyone is able to come to a common table and say, okay, we all believe these things, but then if this is the building material that then starts to assemble the house, I guess it goes with how all these parts fit together. That's really what we're discussing when we're discussing the gospel. So we're just going to go over those common points that we believe, that we believe you all believe as well. The first one, we all accept that 1 Corinthians 15 is the essence of the gospel. So many people, when they hear the word gospel, they're going to go to that passage and say, well, there it is. It's laid out right there. We would agree. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ it captures the essence of the gospel. We would add something. He does say, according to the scriptures, and repeats that multiple times. And so we're not going to jump into that right now, but we would say that there is an entire story or narrative in which the death, burial, and resurrection is being set into that is the pinnacle answer and explanation for everything that has come before it. The second thing is we all agree that Christ alone accomplished the finished work on the cross. Number three, we all agree that man cannot suffer or atone for his own sin. Our works cannot save us. Amen. We all agree we are saved by grace. We all agree that grace is undeserved favor from God. Amen. We believe that faith, according to Scripture, cannot be defined as merely mental assent. Now, we might presume that we all agree on that one, but I think if we all are honest of Scriptures, even one as simple as James 2, that even the demons believe, we know that belief goes beyond mental assent. There's something more to it. Amen. We all believe that only the sick know they have need of a physician. And by that we mean that we all believe that the heart is desperately wicked, bankrupt and unable to clean itself. We all believe that only God enabled works please God, not the works of our own hands, but works that are enabled by God. And only those works are the ones that endure and matter. We believe that by the works of the law, no man can be justified. One cannot save himself 
by cleaning the outside of the cup. And I'm just going to say very briefly that if we heard a gospel message because someone came and visited this community and they were traveling around telling people that you can be made right with God and have your sins atoned for if you're willing to wear a skirt, we would write letters like the letter that was written to the church in Ephesus. We would write letters like the letter that was written to the church in Galatia because that is not the gospel and is certainly not what we are saying. Amen. I just want to be clear about that. We believe that sin must be accounted for. The penalty, the wages, the demand of sin is death. We cannot pay its debt. Instead, its debt must be forgiven. We all believe that. We also believe, going with grace, just to repeat ourselves, that nothing in us qualifies as deserving the payment for this debt. Amen. Lastly, we believe that God's love is able to keep one to the end, to keep them from stumbling and to present them blameless on that day. Amen. Amen. So those are all our common points of agreement. And if we considered each one of those points to be lumber, we now need to see how they all fit together into God's house or into God's story of this great act of redemption. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we've established these 11 points that we hold in common. And now let's draw some distinctions of things that we do not hold in common. We believe that there is a popular reductionist version of the gospel out there that does not amount to the power of God unto salvation, but wreaks terrible harm both in the believer's life and in the life of the church. And we think that the fruit of this reductionist gospel does not represent the power of God unto salvation, but represents bondage to sin, complete immersion into the world, and the breakdown of family and church. In the shortest sentence, we ask, what is the gospel? And we would say, the gospel is this. Jesus Christ proves that a saving relationship through trust is now possible with God the Father. And not only does He prove it, but through His death and the resurrection resulting in the outpouring of the Spirit, He makes possible, He enables our access into this saving relationship. The reductionist gospel of our day purports that rotten people may enjoy legal status change before the Father, exempting them from judgment and all consequences for their sin and lifestyle. The New Covenant from the very beginning has always been described in terms of changing our relationship with God. When we adopt a gospel that is strictly a legal problem with a legal solution, then we miss the preponderance of Scripture that suggests Jesus came and the new covenant was given to enable relationship with God. In Leviticus, the Lord says to Moses, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not despise you. In Isaiah, he says, speaks of the new covenant era, and he says, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people 
who know the Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. That's Isaiah 11 and 9. In Isaiah 54, the Lord describes the restored relationship with his people through Christ's future covenant, and he says, Then all your sons will be taught by Yahweh, and great will be their prosperity. In righteousness you will be established. Jesus refers to this same passage in John 6:45 when he says, It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from Him comes to me. Because Christ came to release the Holy Spirit to indwell mankind, people would no longer merely be taught by men, resulting in knowing about God. Instead, the new covenant would enable us to know the Lord, to be taught by God Himself. This change in relationship entails indwelling anointing in believers. John speaks of this in his epistle. The anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now, I'll make a little side note here that John is teaching while he says that you don't need a teacher. But John is not teaching as one carnal head instructing another carnal head. Instead, John is teaching in the manner in which Paul taught. My teaching and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and power. So John can say with Paul, you received our word not as the word of men, but as it was in truth the word of God. Or as he says to the Galatians, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Paul similarly shows that God directly reveals his will to people through the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, he says, and I quote, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. So from the very beginning, God created an environment for relationship. That's what Eden was. As a result, He walked with man in the spirit of the day. Man heard God's voice and he communed with God. God intended to express his image, his glory, through man and throughout the whole earth. Instead, man chose to reject the unfolding transformation whereby he would be made like God through relationship. Instead, man adopted a shortcut proposed by a serpent called the devil. Man adopted rivalry and competition and vainglory instead of trusting relationship. What was broken at Eden was faith. What was broken at Eden was trust. 
And what was lost when faith and trust were lost was direct communion with God through the Spirit. And so from the beginning until the end, the goal has been to restore that communion, that relationship with God through the Spirit, that we might one day walk with Him in the cool of the day. Jeremiah spoke of the new covenant as this restored relationship. This is what Yahweh says, Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom. Don't let the powerful boast in their power or the rich in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me, says the Lord, and understand that I am Yahweh who demonstrates chesed, or unfailing love. So Jeremiah says, there's no other boast, there's no other claim that is legitimate for human beings except to say, we know God. That is the dilemma, that is the breach, and the gospel mends that breach. Paul alludes to this same boast in 1 Corinthians 1.31, 2 Corinthians 10.17, and Galatians 6.14. Jeremiah continues in chapter 24 to depict the new covenant in terms of restored relationship with God. Quote, I will give them a heart to know me, says the Lord, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. The breach was a rupture of relationship through trust. The gospel would be a restoration of relationship through trust. Jeremiah further describes the new covenant in chapter 31. Specifically, the Lord says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one I made of old when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. But I will put my law in their hearts and cause them to walk in my statutes. And here's a seminal depiction of the new covenant. No longer will each man teach his neighbor saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, says the Lord. Habakkuk uses Isaiah's verbatim words to describe the new covenant when he says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. That's Habakkuk 2 and 14. If there is no relationship with God, there is no salvation. Every time Jesus described disappointed expectations of people who thought they were saved and found out they were lost, he described it in terms of a breach of relationship. In Matthew he declares, saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So Jesus says, You can say that Christ is your Lord, but that does not qualify you. You must do the will of his Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
And there is a direct corollary here and in every other gospel that records this exchange. There is a corollary between knowing God and ceasing from lawlessness. If you continue in lawlessness, that is offered as proof that you do not have the saving relationship with God. What is the gospel? A declaration that relationship with God is now possible by trust because of the atoning sacrifice and the outpouring of the Spirit. In Matthew 25, 12, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Again, it's a salvation passage where people are surprised that they're lost. He says the same thing in Luke 13, 25 through 27. I do not know who you are or where you come from. In Philippians 3.10, Paul describes his quest. If we could just turn to that so that I can get the full context. Philippians 3.10. In verse 7, he says, What things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. And I want to show you here momentarily that in order to have a covenant relationship with Christ that is saving, you must forfeit what you once thought was gain. And you will not have a saving relationship apart from that. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. He does not say that I may understand words about Christ or accept doctrines or facts about Him. He wants to gain the Anointed One, and He wants to be found in Him. Be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So he says, I want God's righteousness that comes through faith, that I may know Him. The juxtaposition, the contrast between the righteousness from the law that is His own and the righteousness from God is a conflict between distant obedience versus relational trust. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. What is the opposite of legalism? Knowing Him, being found in Him, and participating in the fellowship of His sufferings, and being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Notice Paul doesn't say, and with this I have flippant, egotistical hubris certainty that I have attained the resurrection of the dead. He thinks it's still possible that he could lose this. He says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Trusting relationship with God is eternal life. We like to think of eternal life as something that occurs in heaven after we do everything right on earth. But that's not how Jesus described it. That's not how the Bible depicts it. When Jesus spoke to Martha, she put resurrection and eternal life into the future. He dragged it into the present and said, I am the resurrection and the life. So in John 5, 24, he says, Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me 
has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So this is not something futuristic. He does not describe eternal life as something he'll get because he believed the right set of facts. He describes eternal life as a substance or a, a reality that the believer has and it's already happened. He's already passed out of death into life. In John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Here's the combination of possessive language with relational language. If we want to be those who are not cast out of his hand, we have to know him and we have to be known by him. This is the restoration of the relationship. I know my own and my own know me. And how different it would be if the construct of that sentence read like this, I know about my own and my own know about me. We know that knowing about is not what he's speaking of because he is God and he knows everything. So when he says to someone, I never knew you, this is not the know about language. This is not the know about definition of know. Because it would be false for God to speak to anyone and say, I never knew about you. He has the hairs of our head numbered. A sparrow can't fall without his knowledge. He knows about all of us. There's nothing we do that is hidden from his sight. All things are naked and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, the Bible says. So it's not a know about kind of relationship. It's a knowing kind of relationship. I know about Joe Biden. Not, not a lot of good about it, but I know about him. But I don't know him. In order to say, I know this person, that entails relationship. Intimate knowledge with this person. Gnosko. The word is used to translate the Hebrew word yada. Adam knew his wife and they begot a son. So he's not talking about knowing about. Otherwise it would be meaningless for him to say, I never knew about you. He's saying, I never had an intimate relationship with you. You were not knowing my word. You were not receiving my spirit. We did not have communion. You were off on your own track, claiming my name to do your works, but we never actually had a relationship. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Also in verse 27 of this same chapter, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gives them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. But in this passage, he's established that eternal life is tied to relationship. And now we're going to explore how we know that we have that relationship. Amen? Proofs of a loving, trusting, saving relationship. How do we know that we have this relationship? This relationship Jesus spoke of in John 17 in His high priestly prayer. What did He say? He did not say, this is how you get to eternal life. He said, this is eternal life. To know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Now the kind of knowing that we're supposed to have is not know about because everybody knows about Him. The demons believe that there is one God and shudder, which is more than most Christians do. But He's not talking about that. 
That kind of knowledge does not save you. He's talking about a kind of knowledge that imparts God's Spirit into us, that causes us to hear His voice, as we just read, to follow Him, to obey Him. So, have we established that salvation is a relationship with God? Now, let's look at the hallmarks of a saving relationship with God. Most evangelicals today believe that if you are living a sanctified, godly life, that shows that you think you're saved by works and not by grace. Is that what Jesus taught? In John 14, 15, He said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Now that term love is a relationship term. That love describes the restoration of the Eden breach. And He says, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Now this false, Bible-hating dogma teaches us that if we keep His commandments, it's legalism. But legalism is the opposite of love. The truth, Jesus says, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. In the same passage, just six verses later, Jesus says, He who has My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Now, this is an important passage because the love of the Father is what sent the Son to make the redeeming sacrifice. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Do you want that love of God, of His only begotten Son's sacrifice? Well, He says, if you do, you better love God and show it by keeping His commandments. Next verse, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our dwelling place with him. So if you love God, you will be obedient. And if you love God, God will come and abide, which is to say live by His Spirit inside of you. In John 15, 10, He says, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. Also in John 15, He says, Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. But he doesn't stop there. He qualifies and shows them whether they're his friends or not. He says, Greater love hath no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I mean, if we deconstruct that sentence, what he's saying is, I'm going to lay down my life for those who do what I command them. And if you don't do what He commands you, you're not His friend, and He didn't lay down His life for you. He did, but you're not receiving it as such. In John 21, 16, He said to them a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love Me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed My sheep, which is to say, Obey the command to lay down your life for others. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. 
So the kind of love that Jesus is interested in is not knowledge about. It's relationship with. Thank you, Lord. Amen. In 3 John 11, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God or known God. And the tense is not, has not seen God. The Greek is, is not seeing God. Which is an interesting thought. In 1 John 3, 6, he says the same thing. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or known Him. If you go on sinning, you have not seen Him or known Him. Because relationship with God empowers you to completely overcome that. In 1 John 5, 3, he says, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. This is it. This is the love of God. In 1 John 3, 24, he says, The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So we know that He abides in us if we keep His commandments. And we know He abides in us by the Spirit that He has given us. Because we can't obey apart from His Spirit. We can't keep His commandments. It's not like we start being extra righteous and taking credit for it. It's got to come from Him, all of it. In 1 John 4, He says, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. So we're asking the question, How do I know I have a saving relationship with God? And we've answered, if you go on sinning, you don't have one. If you don't love, you don't have one. If you have His Spirit, then you know you have a saving relationship. And now John says, if you listen, if you hear the brethren, if you hear the Word of God and your brothers and sisters. So he says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In 1 John 3, he says, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. As if eternal life refers to the spirit that is eternal and that it's living in us. It's not just something we get at the end of our days. Amen. Okay, so in 1 John 2 and 3, he makes this big statement. This is how we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. So everybody who thinks they're saved by a cheap gospel... They need to listen to that scripture. This is how we know that we have come to know Him. This is it. This is the big seminal test. Are you obedient? Do you keep God's commandments? If you do, then you must know Him. And then He won't say, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. He would say, you couldn't have been working that unless I had known you. <laughs> Amen. And He'll know that before the, the conflict. But... The seminal test is, do you know God? And the test of whether you know God, the seminal proof is, do you keep His commandments? If you don't keep His commandments and you say you know Him, He just says you're a liar and the truth is not in you. 
How do we keep His commandments? When His anointing, His Holy Spirit comes inside of us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and God abides in Him. So the one who is able to obey is able because he lives in God and God lives in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Amen. In Romans he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of sonship as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Because you are sons of God, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, it says in Galatians 4. He says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So let me just package this all back up, and then we'll open it up to questions. The Gospel is the herald the message that we can have a saving relationship with God. And I'm saying this relationship is not real if it is not accompanied by obedience, if it is not accompanied by love, the witness of the Holy Spirit, by fruit. Amen. And in the end, we can say that we did mighty works, but if we did not have this relationship, then we're not going to be saved. So whatever the gospel does, it's got to remedy the relationship dilemma. Because when Jesus describes people being rejected who thought they were saved, He did not ask them, did you confess me as your personal Savior? He said, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So the problem is not solving a legal dilemma and changing legal status primarily, although it includes that. The problem is a relational problem. And we have to understand how does Jesus' death fix that relationship? How does Jesus' burial apply to that relationship? How does Jesus' life, resurrection, apply to that relationship? And then we have to say if the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that they did not obey the gospel. So how does a believer obey the death of Jesus Christ? How does one obey the burial of Jesus Christ? How does one obey the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If the gospel is merely facts that we assent to, then we are no better than those who said, Lord, Lord, but did not do the will of His Father. But how do we obey? How do we obey? Well, hopefully this obedience, this participation in the gospel will take us out of one kingdom of separation and into the kingdom of the Son of His love, the kingdom that is also called the body of Christ, that is also called the church. So I'm just going to put a couple more thoughts out there. If God seeks a saving relationship with us, which He does, as all these scriptures have shown, ask yourself, does that relationship come in the context of covenant or does it come outside of the bounds of covenant? Does the Lord give us His merits and His assets and assume our sin, liabilities, and judgment in the context of covenant or outside of covenant? 
If it is only in the context of covenant, then the gospel has to include repentance and baptism and commitment and covenant. If it's indiscriminately tossed about outside of covenant, then that's a totally different matter and that's what the evangelical church largely looks like today. We would argue that it is exclusively in the context of covenant. Okay, so I've thrown a lot out there <laughs> and um, we can start taking some questions now and broadening this. Hopefully we've established the broadest sense that salvation is relationship. That's what was breached at the garden and that's what Christ was mending through the death, burial, and resurrection, which is the gospel. Amen. Amen. Well, great job. You answered a lot of questions uh, in that, but I think there are still a lot of clarifications that, um, that can be had in, in ways that we can sort of tease this out. Um, you mentioned o obeying the gospel, and, and that would be the death, the burial, and the resurrection. I think one important question, uh, m most churches that I've attended, um, you know, they talk about the resurrection as proved by historical fact and something that will happen to me sort of someday down the road. You know, we have Easter services where we proclaim that He is risen, but we don't talk much about the resurrection uh, outside of that. And we don't really emphasize on what the implications of that resurrection are for me today. So why do we put more of an emphasis on the resurrection? And what are the implications? And what does that mean for my life today currently? Amen. So when the first church on the day of Pentecost received the power of the Spirit, that was the birth of the church, and when the first message of conviction came to the audience by Peter, they asked him, what should we do? Men and brethren, what must we do? Peter answered them, and I want to ask, did he give them the gospel? Or did he give them some arbitrary formula that he had cooked up on his own? He gave them the gospel. He gave them the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Peter brought a word of conviction and the multitude said, what must we do? He gave them the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but how they should obey it and participate in it. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. They obeyed and 3,000 souls were added to their number. Repent, be baptized, be filled. Do you see the corollary between death, burial, resurrection? Yes. We die to the reign of sin in repentance. We commit that old man under the cross of Christ through what Peter called the pledge of baptism and what Paul called the burial of baptism. And then we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about all the times in the New Testament where there is a contrast with law. He does not contrast it to freedom. He contrasts it to the Spirit. In Romans 8, he says, What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending His Son. And then he goes on and he says that we might fulfill 
the righteous requirement of the law who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen? So, the law showed us what was required, but it was weak through the flesh. It did not empower us. But Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem until you be clothed with power. And that is the receiving of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The law was not bad because it was too hard on human beings. It was rejected because it was weak through the flesh to make anyone righteous. And I quote Paul again. It was weak to actually put to death the flesh. So in Colossians, he says, you're being subjected again to do's and don'ts. He said, these have the appearance of godliness in self-imposed religion, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Legalism is not good, but evangelicals would suggest that it is bad because it's too hard on people. In fact, Paul says it's not good because it is of no value against the flesh. We need something more lethal against the flesh, something more powerful. So Paul says back in Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, he speaks to the saints of God at Rome, people who've already accepted Jesus as their personal Savior. And to that congregation, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So those who have a gospel that is a celebration of Good Friday only, they have missed two-thirds of the gospel. The gospel is the death, but it is also the burial, and it is also the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made alive. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says that Christ is risen, the first fruits. Amen? Now, what were the first fruits? The first fruits described the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was the celebration, Shavuot, that came 50 days after Passover. Amen? And it was the celebration of first fruits, tying in with the almond blossom which was tied into the olive tree, which is the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It says in Acts, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one place, and there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and the Holy Spirit came on them. When the day of first fruits had fully come. Now, Christ's resurrection, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, is the first fruits. But that resurrection released the Holy Spirit. If I go away, I will send the Comforter, the Helper, the Advocate, the Parakletos, the one who empowers us. And that's the first fruits of Pentecost. Amen? So in James 1, 17 and 18, he speaks to believers who are still alive, and he said, God gave us birth that we might be the first fruits among His creatures. And in Romans 8, 23, Paul says, We also have the first fruits of the Spirit. So Christ, when he rose from the dead, that was the first fruit. But when Pentecost came on the Feast of First Fruits, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead filled them. Amen. So this is part of the Gospel. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 
If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive for righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, present tense, if God's Spirit is alive inside of you, lives in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you, present tense. To receive the Spirit is to partake of the first fruits, the first resurrection even while we still wait for its ultimate culmination in the redemption of our bodies. So we emphasize the spirit because the death removed the barrier, but the spirit shows us the power of the relationship. The death took away the blockage so that we could know the Lord through the spirit. Maybe we can <clears throat> contrast this for a minute. if. The model that you're operating under is a model of mental ascent, then it would make sense that when it comes to the resurrection, you're going to spend a lot of time looking at the scientific proof of whether or not a physical resurrection occurred. You're going to write books on evidence that demands a verdict or the case for Christ, and you're going to look at that and say, you know what, I can rationally believe that Jesus rose again from the grave, which I don't see how people really attached to that a whole lot, but I will just say, if your model is a mental ascent model, then that makes a lot of sense. That's the approach you're going to take. If your model instead is a growing awareness of inner deformity, a growing sense of bankruptcy of soul that you yourself possess, a sense that there is some kind of sickness in me that is going to take me to the grave, and right now it's producing a present death. In fact, when I look around at everything I touch or I'm a part of, it seems as though there's always some wrong motive attached to it, some residue of self in which I can't help it. By default, there's some rebellion in me that takes every circumstance and every situation and turns it into I'm at the center of the solar system and all the planets have to align around me. And I don't want this disease. I don't feel that it, it produces anything enduring lasting or that would give me real joy or permanency of things that I feel. But I feel stuck in it and I don't know how to get out of it. A person that is coming into that starts to go, I believe that if I could come to know God, Amen. the one who constituted life on this earth, if I could be established in relationship with Him, then somehow maybe there could be a reversal of this briar patch and wilderness of my own soul. Maybe God could establish something in me that would be completely different than this, you know? And, and I'll tell you, those who are pressing towards resurrection are those who are looking at all those stories in the gospel of people who are in a plight. Son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And they don't hear about a miracle so that they can think about, maybe if I get sick one day, maybe God will do a miracle for me. You know, maybe if I turn blind one day, I'll be able to see again. They hear a story that echoes to them of a miracle that could be possible for their own resurrection. Something that says God could touch me with a power that could cure my blindness, Amen. that could change my disease of selfishness, that could turn my <coughs> leprosy into cleanness through and through. And they start to say, you know what? I've tried this polishing of the outside of the cup with religion. I've attempted to try to do a lot of outward things that could make me inwardly feel right with God and right with man. But it's not working. It's not working. In fact, the more and more I come to an awareness of God's standards and what it looks like to be in relationship with Him, the more I find a principle at work in me that is hostile towards it. You know, I find that there is a fire of rebellion 
in me and the oxygen to it is this law and it won't satisfy it won't change me it says Saul was breathing threats and murder murderous threats against the church it literally was his fuel for life was this law that he could not attain to a righteousness he could not obtain through this law and yet he saw these people they were being liberated by something and he saw in their eyes and in their face when Stephen stood and his face shined like an angel he said what has possessed this man and how is it that he satisfies the law and satisfies all that I know the Torah was about how does he do it what has happened in him and I will say a man like that can start to hope in the resurrection that God if he would abandon himself and lose his life completely if he would say so my life to yours at that cross cursed is the man on that tree and cursed am I Lord through and through sow me and immerse me into your death Lord amen, amen. and put me all the way through Lord Amen. Let it go to the place of complete burial that I could stand and say that man is no longer the man that will ever live in this body. I will no longer yield to his desires or designs or thoughts or patterns. But instead, Lord, I'm going to yield to your power, the power that raised a man from the grave, the power that can raise me up Amen. from the dead. And I will tell you, the reason why we're going to stress an infilling in the Spirit is because the life that you want in God is not possible save that of an infilling of His Spirit. If it wasn't the case, He wouldn't have found fault with the first covenant in which all the demands of God stood outside of man and came to man through that way. This is what Brother Ossie showed so many scriptures that proved. He said, no, I'm going to change this. There's going to be a union. Heaven and earth are going to meet again, and they're going to meet right here in the heart of man. And that is why the resurrection is so central to what we talk about. You know, we're, the proof of a resurrection is, I don't know this man anymore according to the flesh, because behold, a new creation is in front of me. I see the life of God emanating from him. There's something different here. And I'll tell you, if, if you had a choice between one or the other, if you had a choice between studying all the historical facts you could of the resurrection to prove that it actually occurred, or meeting a guy like Kevin who used to be dead in sin and completely in the bondage of his own misery of self and then seeing a man called by God out of the grave and raised to the newness of life. Which one, which one are you rejoicing in more? Amen. To me, I'm saying, I know the resurrection's true. How do I know that? Because I saw a bunch of dead people who all got raised again from the dead, have been filled with God's Spirit, partaking of His nature and bringing His glory out of their life, His righteousness throughout Amen. all their life. Amen. 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 Well, that brings up, I think, sort of a, the next question would be, um, there's a presupposition in evangelicalism, and it's based on uh, Ephesians 1.13. It says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of His glory. So, the churches that I have been to, where I come from, there is, there is sort of just a presupposition that we all have the Holy Spirit. We're all filled with the Holy Spirit. That happened when I got saved. And, but at the same time, we find ourselves in this place 
where we seem to be living a, a Romans 7 Christianity of like, okay, well, I have the Spirit, but at the same time, I, I can't do the things that I want to do and the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. And so what's going on here? What, what, what is the difference between what you all are talking about and being sealed with the Holy Spirit at a point of coming to know God? And the power, is there a difference in the, in the power that would empower obedience behind that versus finding yourself in that Romans 7 Christianity? Because I will say this, that when I start talking about freedom from sin, when I start talking about victory over sin, when I start talking about walking in righteousness, um, for some reason it seemed to make people really uncomfortable. Right. Well, that's because they're taking refuge behind a false doctrine. But the saving relationship is always attended by the fruits of obedience, keeping His commandments, witness of the Spirit, and, and life. Could you read 2 Corinthians uh, 13.5? And let's just look and see if Paul endorses the idea that we should just assume that we have the Spirit. The idea that believing is receiving is, is a misnomer. Otherwise, Paul's exchange in uh, Acts 19.5 when he meets believers at Ephesus, he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So it was a distinct possibility in Paul's mind that these believers could know about Jesus and have some kind of faith that he called them believers, but they might not have received the Spirit. As it turned out, they had not received the Spirit. And so when Paul heard this, he told them they needed to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And when he laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues and prophesied. So the same thing happened in Acts 8, where you have Philip... Uh, evangelizing to the Samaritans and thankfully many are becoming believers and many are being baptized but it says about the Spirit as of yet the Holy Spirit had come on none of them and so they sent for Peter and John I think it was but certainly Peter uh, to come down and when Peter started laying his hands on people they started receiving the Spirit now up to this point Simon the sorcerer has not offered money for anything but when he sees people get baptized in the Spirit, evidenced by tongues we can assume from all the other passages, that is where he says, can I, can I offer money to, so that when I lay hands on people, they also can uh, receive the Spirit? And the apostles had some choice words for him. But the point was, this whole idea of believing is receiving is a lie. It's just unscriptural. It's false through and through. So in John 7.37, Jesus says, uh, he stands on the last day of the feast and cries out with a loud voice saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his being will flow rivers of living water. This, John says, he spoke about the Spirit whom those believing in him, present tense, would receive future tense. So here we have this phenomenon of disciples in a present state of belief looking for a future infilling of the Spirit. It is true that we receive the Spirit by faith. Faith is the means. Faith is the medium by which we apprehend the Spirit. But it doesn't mean that every time anyone's had any level of belief they've automatically received the Spirit. This is a fallacy. But if you could read this 2 Corinthians 13 5. Amen. Yeah, this is a New King James. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. 
test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. So he says to Christians at Corinth, he says, test yourselves and examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? This is the same language Paul was using in Romans 8. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive for righteousness. And there he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. So if Christ is in you, that means his Spirit is in you. But then he says, unless indeed you fail the test. So Paul holds out the distinct possibility that believers, upon examination, are going to find that the Holy Spirit, Christ's Spirit, is not in them that somehow they are disqualified when they examine themselves. All of this would indicate that it is dangerous to assume that we have it. The Lord has given distinct signs that mark the baptism of the Spirit, and the Lord has given distinct fruits that mark a life in the Spirit. This is how we know we have it, upon careful, thoughtful examination, not upon assumption because somebody told us so. I think in Acts 18, just to add to this point, is that Apollos comes, he's described this way, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So I think we can all agree that this man knew his scriptures and he was teaching concerning Jesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And yet there's something incomplete and the gospel message that he is bringing, something that they don't yet understand how they participate in. I doubt that he wasn't teaching about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but somehow they did not know how they entered in to that message. Because listen to what it says. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus. Can we all agree he taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus? Amen. Amen. Though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, what did John's baptism, what was the centerpiece of John's baptism? Repentance. A baptism of repentance. So they had entered into the first part of this gospel. Repent. He was preaching, and underneath his ministry, people were saying, okay, I am coming into agreement with the death of my own life, my own present self-centered, egocentric existence. Okay, but that didn't go far enough. So listen to what it says. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So you think to yourself, okay, uh, this kind of ties a lot of things together. It really does. Um, one is, is that who is Aquila and Priscilla? We don't know a whole lot about them, but we know they're tent makers who travel in ministry with Paul. But here is Apollos. Did they get the same introduction that Apollos got? They did not get that introduction. It was not some story about, you know, let me tell you, it says Apollos was elegant, a man competent in the scriptures, one who spoke boldly concerning Jesus, okay? And then it said, but then these two people, they come to him and say, let us show you a more excellent way. It kind of harkens you back to the idea of there was no one greater than John, Amen. and yet the one who is least in the kingdom, he is greater than John. There was no other prophets that could compare to this man, John the Baptist. And yet I tell you, the one who is least in the kingdom will be greater than this man. Again, speaking of some reality that was coming, 
some change that was going to happen based upon the announcement of the gospel. And he ties it to how you were born. Amen. He says, among all those born of women, Amen. John the Baptist is the greatest. Amen. But the least in the kingdom is greater than he, indicating entrance into the kingdom is the empowerment of the Spirit, the rebirth Amen. at Pentecost. Amen. So Apollos goes on, and let's just fast forward for a minute. And, um, and he was preaching in Ephesus. He had a wonderful message. It was a powerful message of repentance. However, two people pulled him aside and showed him a more excellent way. Paul comes to the same place. So just think, okay, Apollos has left. Okay, he's been instructed by these people as he's going. He's on his way to Corinth. But okay. he's from Ephesus. He's from Ephesus. So he's away from town. He, he's away from town, and it comes walking in this traveling minister, okay, Paul. And he walks into Ephesus, and this is what it said. And, then, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Do you think this is tied to Aquila and Priscilla showing the more excellent way? But it doesn't finish there. Listen. And he said, into what then were you baptized? Explain to me your burial. Amen. You see? John had a, a baptism of repentance, but it was not a burial. He says, explain to me your burial. That's what he's saying here. And he says, um, they said, well, we were into John's baptism is the baptism we received. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, but he was telling people to believe in the one who was coming after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now all of a sudden, a burial. Now all of a sudden, a man committed to the grave and the taking on of a new name. Makes you think about how Genesis opens up with Adam and Eve who had no earthly parents, and yet the gospel is told to us right up front, saying they will have to leave mother and father and cleave to another. The natural life will have to be left. The one that came to you by your own natural life, that will have to be forfeited in order to enter into a new covenant, one that is going to take you into true life. And so here all of a sudden he says, uh, what were you baptized into? And he baptizes them in the name of Jesus, which we're not going to get into baptism and taking on a new name. But this is crucial to the gospel. It's how many evangelicals or just people in the church in general would say that the, the, the gospel is the death and resurrection? Mm -hmm. Or just the death. Or, or just the death. Okay, but, but why is burial right in the middle of that? Amen. And why does Paul immediately go, what were you buried in? That's what he's asking him. Amen. Okay, so he goes on. This is what he says. He says, uh, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about 12 men in all. So I, I just want to point one more thing out here. Okay, Do you think that the people that heard the powerful preaching of Apollos felt something in God as they began to repent and turn from their ways Amen. in the baptism of John. Amen. Do you think that just the adjustment that was taking place and the conditions of their heart and their mind started to open up to wellsprings of grace in which they were feeling, I feel different. 
I feel, I, I feel like I, I know what love is more. I feel like I understand forgiveness right now. I, I mean, do you think that they, that they could say this is, this is really, really impactful and powerful? They most certainly did. The question is, how is that type of experience going to distinguish itself from the gospel that Paul comes in with that says, right, but did you receive the resurrection life inside of you? Have you experienced that? You know, now I don't know about you, but I don't think you can understand this text any other way. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about the work that he did. But he is, he is now going to lead them into how they can enter in, obey, by going into the burial of Jesus and coming up on the other side, having been filled with his spirit to walk in the newness of life. Amen. Amen. I don't know what we do with these passages if we don't say there's a distinction here. There is a distinction. They had to enter in. Amen. Amen. And I'll tell you what kind of faith enters into that type of resurrection. Paul tells us in Romans 4, it's a faith that hopes against hope that God can raise the dead. Amen. He says it's the faith of Abraham, and all of you are sons of him if you have this same faith. These people, they experienced something when they heard about the gospel, but they said, when does the inward deformity get permanently changed in us? When do we become a partaker of that divine nature and have real union and abiding relationship with God? And in hope against hope, they said, we believe in the one who can raise the dead. Put us into the waters of baptism and burial that we might come out a new man. It, it is by faith. Listen how Colossians says it, and then we'll, uh, we'll go to the next question. But listen how Colossians describes this faith. Because I'm telling you, this is at the heart for so many, isn't it? Whether or not you're going to keep believing or you've just settled. You've just said, you know what? I guess I'm always going to be this guy. I'm always going to be battling lust. I'm always going to be. If you've settled, you've lost the faith of Abraham. Amen. I am telling you. That, that is exactly what's occurred. This is Colossians 2. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, faith in the powerful working of God. He says, this is how you were raised. You hoped against hope that the one who raised him from the dead would do the same in you if you cling to his promises. If you said, if I but touch the hem of his garment, if you said, I will not be put off with cheap words. It says, if you are that one who is pressing in with the faith of Abraham, knocking, seeking, asking, he says, he will give you the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's Amen. what it's saying. Amen. 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 I believe that raised with him is resurrected. Amen. It's the same word. It is. Amen. <laughs> well, at least I think it is. I don't Which know that for sure. Which is what it says in Ephesians, too. And can I just Amen. say, I, very briefly, you know, you started out with that question of Ephesians, you know, Paul says, you believed, you know, and it's like I noticed how you all, in, in answering this question, you went right back to the book of Acts, you know. Yeah which so much of what you were basing this answer on was the book of Acts. It was describing the birth of the church. It was describing people who were believing, and yet wherever they were at, when God brought them something more, they continued to believe and show their belief by their obedience. And it's like, you feel like rather than just plucking one verse out of context and saying, see, believed, and assuming that belief means simply a mental assent, you know, or an acceptance of facts, you're at, we're actually hearing a message that's going right back to the birth of the church 
of people who were pressing on. And I think that was built in. This is probably obvious to everybody. I'm just saying it's, it, that was built into Paul's assumption. And when he was saying belief, that's a word that is loaded with meaning. And it's, it's this whole narrative and story that is coming on. It's not something simple that, you know, oh yeah, belief is just this. We can't impose our truncated, small-minded view of what belief is. This is describing belief. It's interesting that in Acts 11, when Peter baptizes Cornelius and the 11 think he might have done the wrong thing, that they call him on the carpet and when he tells them about Cornelius being filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues, they quieted down and glorified God saying, God has granted them the same gift he granted us when we first believed. Amen. Now, it's interesting that the apostles are describing Pentecost as when we first believed because certainly they had been believing and even lauded by the Lord for their belief for about three years prior. But something changed at Pentecost. It was no longer faith in the abstract. It was faith in, in a relational, immediate sense that empowered them to receive the Holy Spirit. Amen. And that's what he means in Galatians 3 and also chapter 4 when he talks about we receive the Holy Spirit by faith. Most believers say, oh, we have faith instead of the Spirit. Well, you know, that, that doesn't make sense. If you ask me, how do I get to Golson? I would tell you, well, by take 933. And so you could drive out into the middle of 933, park your car and say, well, he said I get there by 933. So I'm just sitting here. No, 933 is the route. In the same way, faith is the route that gets you to the Holy Spirit. You're going to get there by faith. But merely having faith doesn't mean you've arrived in Gulson. It doesn't mean you've arrived in, with the Holy Spirit. It is the process, but you've got to keep believing. You've got to keep pressing in until you get there. Amen. Faith produces works. Amen. Amen. Um, so I think this begs the question, um, the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, death, burial, resurrection. So we've already established it, that the death is talked about in most churches. The resurrection is touched on typically around Easter, but you know we talk about it some as well. Can you just maybe expound on the importance and, and why, why understanding the burial is imperative? Amen. Well, Paul calls baptism and the, the, our union with Christ in his burial, and he calls it burying the old man, you know, committing the old man. As many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him. He just quoted Colossians 2, 10, and 11 as well. Peter calls baptism the pledge. So if repentance is uprooting the tree, as John the Baptist and Jesus seem to believe it was, it's uprooting the old nature from its throne as God. Then baptism is the place where two things happen. We commit the old nature under the cross of Christ. Judged is he who hung upon a tree. And we want that judgment to come on our old man that we might be free to live for God. Amen. So we preempt judgment. We say, Lord, I have died to the reign of this old nature and I'm burying this man in a commitment. And I want you to cover this old man with your atoning blood. Amen. And free me to live for God, live to God a new life by the Spirit. So it's, it's covering the old man under the cross. And then it's also receiving a new identity. Amen. So this takes us back to the idea that 
a relationship is what saves us, but God imposes terms to that relationship. We can all agree that in, in the broadest sense, what happens through the cross is an exchange of assets and liabilities. Okay? So we need God's assets and He needs to take our liabilities. There's another time when this happens and that's through marriage. If, if, if John wants to marry Jane and Jane has a $50,000 school debt and John has a whole lot of money or whatever, then when Jane and John become one entity, Jane loses her independence, John loses his independence, and they become one new entity. Well, then he takes possession of her assets and liabilities, and she takes possession of his assets and liabilities. So in this situation with God, we've got Jesus paying the ultimate sacrifice and having the righteous character. He's called Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the only man truly justified. Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness. He was justified in the spirit. Amen. So he's justified. He's right before God. And we want that righteous character credited to our account. But he credits it in the context of relationship. And that relationship has boundaries. I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. So as Paul says, if we are bound to one husband, we cannot marry another until that one husband dies. Now, the first husband that we're bound to is sin, the sin master. But if that <gasps> sin mastery dies, sin shall no longer have mastery over you, he says in Romans 6, 16. If that sin master dies, Paul says, we are free to marry another. And that other is Jesus. But if we marry Jesus while retaining our relationship with sin or our relationship with the world, we force Christ into adultery and he won't do that. Amen? So, so the scriptures say things like this, whoever loves the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's mutually exclusive. You've got to divorce yourself from those other affections and those other relationships of bondage to sin or else you cannot be a spouse to Christ. James says, whoever seeks to make himself a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. So there's got to be this exclusion. And baptism is when we bury the old nature and also all attachment to the world. Paul said, I have died to the world and the world has died to me. He has counted all these things as rubbish that I may gain Christ. There's an exchange. Give up your rubbish. Commit it to the cross of Christ. Bury it in a lifelong commitment. And Peter says that this baptism is a pledge or an answer to God from a good conscience. So we participate in the burial. When Jesus was buried, this was part of his complete identification with us. When he was buried, his body was locked in a tomb. Amen. That body that had just absorbed on the cross the full penalty of our affliction. When we are buried, we are locking our old man, now condemned, now judged, also in a tomb. We are locking it under a covenant. I will never let this man rule in my life again by the grace of God. I will never be a spouse to the world again by the grace of God. I will never seek friendship with the world to the exclusion of my relationship with God. So burial is important because 
Baptism is the vow that binds us to the relationship that saves us. The relationship I talked about in the beginning. And apart from that, we're asking God to commit adultery with us. We're asking to fornicate. He doesn't do an asset exchange outside of covenant relationship. So he says that baptism is for the new covenant what circumcision was for the old. In the old covenant, he says, whoever is not circumcised has broken my covenant. He shall be put out from his people. So the assets that God wants to transfer, they will not be transferred to those who refuse baptism. It doesn't mean you're not saved prior to baptism, but if you are, it is only because you're progressing toward that and He's imputing it to you until it be imparted. But if apathy creeps in, I don't need to be baptized. I don't need to make a covenant. That's not important. Well, then you violate the Scriptures. Peter said, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God, entailing that you don't make a conscience, you don't make a pledge toward God. You don't make a vow to God, then you're not saved. Baptism now saves you as a pledge toward God, to stay aware of God, to keep your conscience clear before Him. Doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes. We're not perfect. Uh, we all stumble in many ways. Just like a husband and wife, uh, our husband, our heavenly husband is perfect, but in a husband-wife relationship, they're not perfect, but they don't break their covenant. And if they keep their covenant, they have this asset exchange and this liability exchange. Next question. I, I'm excited about this question. Okay. So um, I've noticed that we emphasize the death, the burial, and the resurrection as a starting point for a journey of faith. Not as, um, you know, I, I've always thought of salvation historically as something that just happens to you at some point, and there is some finality to it. It, it, it sort of is like the end of, you know, uh, your, your old life and it's like it means you're a Christian now and that's done it is finished sort of mentality whereas I, I know that here we see it as a starting point for a journey of faith something that we get to live something that we get to do something that we get to participate in um, so can we talk about that what is it what is it um, what is that journey of faith what is it what is this a starting point for now that's a, a huge question but uh, I think it's very important because uh, All right, I, let me read this. Although, this is Colossians 1.21, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet God has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. If you continue in the faith, look at your 1 Corinthians 15 chapter that we just quoted from that we're deriving the essence of the gospel from. He says, I make known to you the gospel, brethren, by which you are saved if you continue unless you believed in vain. So, if we're talking about saving faith, saving faith is not a moment in time. It's a path. It's a journey. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter to the full light of day. Amen. I, I think, if I'm understanding the question right, what you're saying is the death, burial, and resurrection start something Amen. in the life of a believer. 
it introduces them into the purposes of God. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. And, and so I think let's contrast two paradigms. Okay. Let's take the one, and I would say that this is largely influenced by Platonic thought. But let's take the one that says God is this completely removed, transcendent being who has a set of laws in which he is just looking on the earth to see who has adhered perfectly to those set of laws. He sees all of you haven't, and so all of you are, are damned, okay? And he says, okay, but you know what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll send my son, and I will take all of your guys' lawlessness and just punish him, and I'll just pour it out on him, you know, and then all of you I'm going to legally declare is right. And then one day down the road, you're going to be transported to heaven. And as you kind of are around, That's you know, grim. when you're kind of around the earth, That's the essence of the question. is you're kind of around the earth after you've believed in this, um, that legally you were declared, you're right. You still feel pretty rotten, but somehow everything's right. Um, You'll maybe share that story with somebody at the, at the, the at, at the coffee shop or or at the the water cooler. But for the most part, your journey now is to just wait. You're waiting until all the realities of God finally immerse itself on this world, which will be way some way down the down the road here. And so you know, um, uh, by the way. Um, you don't want to forget these key doctrines that you were taught about how you were justified and all these things. So attend church every Sunday to make sure you keep that right. Because anytime you might get a pop exam. And if you get that quiz and you don't get it right, boy, you're not going to be saved. You know. So keeping this head knowledge of exactly how these things work together is what you need. So you're going to need to get together probably once a week and just remind each other, quiz each other. Hey, remind me real quick. Can you do anything that pleases God? Nope. Only by grace. Boom. You got it. All right. You're going to make it, buddy. You're going to make it, you know, and that's kind of like and then you leave Sunday and you go back out to your job and all this stuff and, and you just move on, you know. But let's look at a, a passage in the Old Testament that has our key word for the discussion today, gospel in it. And let's see if it introduces us into a greater purpose that God had in mind when he was thinking about the proclamation of the good news. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Did everyone hear the good news? Amen. Amen. He says, the Spirit of God has come upon me to blow the trumpet and make an announcement that the good news is here. And now, granted, well, he starts to talk about who that good news is going to be for. To the poor, he has sent me to bind up those who are broken in heart, okay, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The jubilee. The release of all debts. And the day of vengeance of our God. So God's coming. He's got enemies in mind in which he is also dealing with through and through. Sound like a, a house that's about to get plundered to me. Similar to Egypt. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. So now he starts to say, there's a people in who this announcement is coming to, and you know what they're all sitting around doing? They're all sitting mourning that God had purposes for each one of us and how we were supposed to relate 
to one another that are not being fulfilled. In fact, his holy city, this, this great design that he had to assemble people together in Jerusalem, known also as Zion, he said he, he put them all together. But you know what? Those who truly long for rightness of relationship with God and one another, they sit in ashes mourning because it has not come about. And he said, but those who are sitting in those ashes are about to hear a proclamation of good news. This is not where the story ends. This is not how Zion's last hurrah is going to be. You will not always weep over this fallen city and purpose of God. There's coming a time where something else is going to happen. Listen to what he says. He says to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a fainting spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified or that he may display his beauty is what that word means. He says, listen, there's a word that's coming to those who are this remnant, who are burdened over God's purposes in a holy people. And he says, but there's a message that's coming that's going to reverse all this plight and it's going to take all your sorrow and it's going to give you a song instead. It's going to make you feel that there is victory right here. There's something that is on the horizon. I'll tell you, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for everyone who believes all the way through to the resurrection of their own life in the Lord is celebrating. Now I see the purposes of God are possible. Now I see the fulfillment of all that God intended. I can really have you as my brother. We can no longer betray one another. We can no longer be driven by self-conceit and selfish ambition. We can no longer war and raise a wicked fist against each other, but we can rightly relate to each other that we would be called oaks of righteousness or right relations. Seek first the kingdom of God and right relations. And all these things will be added unto you, Jesus said. So he says, this is coming and you're going to be the planting of the Lord. He's going to establish something on the earth that is by his own hand, not with stones that are crafted by human hands, but he said one that is crafted by him himself. Living stones, a planting of the Lord. And listen to what he says. He says in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout before all the nations. 62 goes right to it. For Zion's sake, I will then not keep silent. Do you hear what he said? Because of this good news coming, Amen. because I believe in this words of prophecy. And he says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not hold my tongue. And he says, until her righteousness, what has been promised, goes forth and with as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. Do you guys start to feel there's something bigger happening to him? He says you're going to be a diadem, a crown of beauty, Amen. that you are going to be the explanation of my purposes to all the nations that they may see me and that they may wonder at me. Okay, so fast forward all the way to Ephesians 
And Paul starts to talk about the eternal purpose of God now being fulfilled in those who have entered into the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. An eternal purpose to assemble us together as God's house, as living stones, to be a dwelling place for God on this earth by His Spirit, that He might explain to all creation, all unseen realms, all of His wisdom, all His beauty, all of His glory, all of His righteousness, how self-giving, self-sacrificing love governing the heart of man makes us the perfect image bearers to tell a story of who God is. Amen. And so, yeah, there, there's a much bigger... If you're just starting at the door of the house, you might want to get to the house. The house is very exciting. The door is very much something you need to answer. Okay, you can't enter this by yourself, and it's not by your own deeds or merits that you can get in. You're going to need to understand how you get through that door. But I'll tell you, once you get into the door, there is something to construct. There is something to be a part of. There is something very exciting on the other side. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a question I really want to get to, but I'm going to save it for next. Kevin, Um, can I say something? Just to, to people listening and things, do they feel a bit more excited about something that God is doing on this earth. I mean, really, I, I, I mean, does it always have to be polemics? Does it always have to be debates? Does it always have to be putting up your fists <laughs> yeah. and saying, what do you believe? And, you know, and all this stuff. It's like, you know, does anyone feel as though, wait, 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 are you saying that the building materials for God's house have been purchased by our Lord and we can enter in and become his craftsmanship that he would assemble a great house on the earth that would explain himself to all the world. Amen. Are you saying we can be a part of that? Are you saying Amen. that? And, and I don't know about you, but I don't think there's a higher calling. There's nothing more exciting. If you love your father, then jealousy for his name should be causing you to go, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So, amen. Um, People might notice that you're, you're, you're quoting the Old Testament quite a bit. Um, or that we, we talk Old Testament quite a bit. Do you think that we need to understand the redemptive history in the Bible to understand the gospel? Amen. Amen. All right. Absolutely. Well, I mean, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, you know, um, he gives that gospel uh, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And that indicates <clears throat> the scriptures of their day were not, did not include the New Testament. So that in, indicates that the vignettes and motifs of redemption started and were brought forth throughout the whole Old Testament. That's why in 1 Peter 3, Peter can say that the gospel was preached to those in the days of Noah. And likewise, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 can say that the rock that followed them was Christ. So. These things were written down for our example on whom the ends of the ages have come. And so if we look at the relationship in the garden, the breach of that relationship, and then all the progressive steps of redemption from Noah's flood to uh, the call of Abraham to the exodus from Egypt to the Babylonian captivity and the uh, exile return and rebuilding of the temple, up until Christ, all of these are giving us types and shadows of the relationship of the restoration, specifically the redemption. 
even the sacrifices and the temple and the temple altar, all of these things are giving us visual, physical vignettes of the spiritual dynamic and reality that is only fully known in Christ. Does that answer your question? I believe so. Do you have anything you want to add, Brother Zach? Well, I was thinking, I turned to the passage, and funny enough, that the opening, he says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. But he doesn't say that that's where it ended. He says, in which you now stand. By which you are saved. And by which you are being saved. Oh, <laughs> which is quite interesting language. Um, and then, of course, he has to say this weird clause that none, doesn't make any sense and, and he didn't understand what he was saying but he said if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you um, unless you believed in vain so you know um, which is the word useless uh, right so really what what Paul is saying this isn't your question but I'm sorry just real briefly because <laughs> I read it when I was about to answer your question but really what he's saying is is that you know I preached you this word that Jesus died and was buried and rose again and I just you're still walking around the streets mummering that under your breath right because if you're not boy I'm really worried about you that you somehow believed in vain and and so you know <clears throat> let's say this what if they said that they believed in that, but then they would not take care of their own household? Worse than an infidel. And having denied the faith. The faith. What faith? Exactly. What faith have they denied by not taking care of their household? You see, the, the reversal, the reversion back to a self-centered life is to break covenant with God and deny the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. I mean, just, just consider what he just said. If, if you can deny the faith and be worse than an unbeliever who is totally unsaved simply because you refuse to care for your family, as Paul said, then accepting the faith, living in the faith, and being saved by the faith must necessarily include more than simply mental assent and acceptance. It includes things like loving your neighbor as yourself. That's how you know you've passed from death to life. It includes taking care of your family. The, the construct, the reductionist gospel, just squeezes it all down to this little thing. Okay, I believe that Jesus died. And they really just catch up with where the demons are at, who believe and tremble, except they don't tremble. And it does not encompass the totality of what the gospel implied for the believers of that day. Let me just ask you, if, if you were to ask Paul, he was sitting here right now, and you were to say, when you said to hold fast to that word of life, can I just ask you what you meant? Did you mean that the believers should continue to walk around and repeat these things that had been done for them and never forget it? Or did you mean instead that everything that that message invited you into to participate and know as your present reality, you must hold fast to that word. That for instance, when you feel the appeal to give life again to your flesh, you need to hold fast to that word that says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God to live unto righteousness, that's eternal life. Do you think when he's saying hold fast to this word, when he says, I have fought the good fight of faith, do you think that what he means is that, you know what, I, I just continued to know that Jesus died for my, for my sins. I just continued to know that. Or do you think he's saying, no, 
I continue to immerse myself by faith and trusting relationship with God despite all of the pressures, despite all of the temptations, despite all of the places of compromise that faced me in the sin and the world and the flesh and the devil, I continue to believe that cursed is a man who hangs on a tree and that is the end of all humanity. It is the end of me if I live according to my own nature and my own self and I held fast to the word of life that I received, that if I would believe in him and I would trust in him, I could shed this earthly, sensual, demonic spirit and posture and mindset and I could live in the newness of life. Which one do you think, if we were to ask Paul, which one was it, Paul, when you said hold fast to the word of life? Mental assent to facts that happened historically or a participation in its reality showing that I have believed with all my heart that this is the way that leads to life? Amen. Which one? Amen. And we know, we know the answer, truthfully, we do. You know? But amen. I just, it, it, he goes on there, he just mentions twice that according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. So clearly he's saying, listen, all the story prior to Christ's arrival is a story that, that is building themes that now are finding their realization in these three events, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. I'm telling you, if your gospel cannot include how the Garden of Eden is encapsulating this reality, if your gospel cannot include how Noah had the gospel preached, if it does, if you can't get there with that, you still don't, if the gospel, for instance, let's say this, did Jesus preach the gospel as he rent around? And yet, did Jesus, had Jesus had the death, burial, and resurrection yet? So what is he, what is he preaching? He's going around telling everyone, go preach the gospel. Go tell the good news. To repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So somehow, kingdom of God is the announcement. The death, or the issue of sin talks about how we make entrance into that kingdom. But this, this I'm just going to say, if, if, if you have a gospel in which you cannot, for instance, just take it and lay it on the Exodus story, the Passover lamb over the top of the doorpost, an exit from the house of sin and bondage out of Egypt, a baptism in Moses through the Red Sea, a conquest into Canaan by the spirit that would lead you into conquest and victory. If you don't have a gospel that can be overlaid into that story, then you don't have a gospel that's according to the scriptures that Paul is saying. Paul says, I presented a gospel to you that were according to the scriptures, the ones you all know. People say, well, you know, how are people going to know all that? Well, I don't know. He said he was a wise master builder and that when he was communicating this word, he was doing it with a tremendous amount of care because if they didn't know the backdrop of the scriptures, he was going to lay it out to them. How many times do we read that Paul walked into a city and went straight to the synagogues, those who knew the scriptures, and started to reason with them concerning the Messiah? How all the promises of your scriptures find their culmination, find their fulfillment in this work. So, amen. I, I would say that it's very, very, very important to know. I, I, I'm just going to hold this up to the camera so people can see it. But um, the announcement of the good news... of the new covenant is that thin and it's growing out of the soil of this story right here. You see how thick this is? And then this is the, this is the story that grows up 
out of that and its fulfillment. To not know this and to not understand this is to, is to come into a message that is going to be absent of all of its roots, all of its understanding. And as a result, it's going to be a very um, uh, out of context message. You know, maybe even a message do you think that could, if it got divorced from its roots enough, do you think that it could become just about an individual getting saved and going to heaven instead of about a great story of God constituting life on the earth through new creation? Amen. It maybe could even go that far. I don't know, we'll have to see. <laughs> well, I just got our first question, and interestingly enough, it's from, it's from Riley, and it's, it's uh, interesting because it ties right into the next question I was about to ask. Okay. So we have this video, the, the two Gospels, right? Um, first of all, let me just say what Riley's question is. If, if this is the Gospel, what then is meant by a Gospel of the Kingdom, right? So I'm just going to quickly recap what we sort of know the gospel to be historically, uh, mainstream Christianity, let's call it. You admit you're a sinner. You understand that as a sinner, you deserve death. You believe Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from sin and death. You repent by turning from your old life of sin to a new life in Christ. You receive through faith in Jesus Christ, God's free gift of salvation. Um, and now you have eternal security as there is therefore no condemnation who the, for those that are in Christ. Now I just recited sort of a mainstream Christianity gospel. So I actually have a, a, a friend who watched this video, The Two Gospels, and he called me and he said, what do you guys believe? I don't understand. I didn't see the gospel in that video at all whatsoever. So in that video, um, you, we, we tend to emphasize on a historical context for the word gospel that came from Rome. Obviously, we feel that's significant. We believe in a gospel of the kingdom. Um, can you talk about that, the gospel of the kingdom, and, and why that video may be somebody who believes this, this, this gospel? Well, let, me, that... let me try to start simple and then broaden as, as we uh, go from there. <clears throat> the gospel is the good news that we can have relationship with God, saving relationship through trust. But the context for that relationship is the kingdom. So Amen. the kingdom is the church, is the bride, is the one espoused to Christ. So if we want to have covenantal saving relationship with God, the kingdom is the context for that relationship. We cannot have an individualistic relationship with God apart from the church, apart from the kingdom. So if we say we love God whom we have not seen but do not love our brothers whom we can see, we're liars, John said. So. When Jesus comes, he almost never uses the term gospel except tied to the term kingdom. He says, repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom is at hand. Amen? Amen. So to Brother Zach's point, the gospel is how you get into the kingdom. And the kingdom represents that covenanted people, that bride of Christ that is in covenantal relationship with Jesus, that bride who has taken on his assets and given her liabilities, that church. You look at Ephesians 5 and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Showing that even his act on the cross, Paul saw as an act for a corporate entity, her, the church, not so much just individuals off doing their own thing. 
So he gave himself up for her to purify a bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So the church is obviously the kingdom. That's a whole other study, but we make that assertion based on uh, Matthew 16, verse 17 and 18, where Jesus says to Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church. I give you the keys to the kingdom. The church is the kingdom. We see that in Ephesians 1.21, where he says, He put all things in subjection under his feet to the church. This word subjection in the Greek is absolutely a kingdom term. Um, Paul says, you have become kings without us. You have begun to reign, so on and so forth. But that's a whole nother discussion. But we would, we would assert that the gospel is always tied to the kingdom because the gospel is good news of salvation in the context of relationship. And the relationship is going to be lived out, can only be lived out, in an abiding covenant with his body where the kingdom represents the place where the king has dominion. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the relationship represents the place where believers accept that dominion. Amen. You ne depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You, not everyone who says this will enter, but he who does the will of my father will enter. This is the relationship where people are doing the will of God. The will spoken through scripture, the will spoken through the spirit, the will articulated through brothers and sisters called to, to speak his word into our lives. So the gospel is always the gospel of the kingdom. And now if we could just look at the word itself, first of all, the video was not purported to be a declaration of, of salvation. The video is a study on the constructs and connotations behind the word that Jesus chose to use. Now, if, you, if people could bear with me for just a minute here, the word gospel has a simple meaning, which is just straight up good news, and a, a, a positive announcement. But it had a colloquial meaning that was more than that. And that colloquial meaning was given that word by Caesar Augustus. So if, if I ask you, the word campaign has a simple meaning. It can be a, a business campaign, it can be an advertisement campaign, but when I first said the word campaign, political connotations went through all of our minds. In the same way, the word gospel has good news, but it had much bigger connotations than that. Caesar Augustus had adopted this as his key word, and this is according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is an exhaustive study on it, but he had adopted this to herald a new order, an order of peace and prosperity that would be instituted through a man who had divine power himself. And so the gospel of the kingdom and that specific construct was first coined by Caesar, and it became synonymous with more than just good news. It came to signify this global order, this global kingdom, this reign of peace and wealth and prosperity that was going to be possible because of a man who would impose his will through the Roman Empire and by means of his supernatural powers. 
and they said it would be the birth of a new age. It would be the beginning of a new calendar. They said about Caesar, he works miracles and heals men. This is all before Jesus. And we know the devil just anointed this politician to get people pursuing yet another kingdom of this world instead of the kingdom of Christ that had been foretold as early as Isaiah 61 and 62. So when Jesus used that word, it was highly significant to his audience that he would pick a word so charged with political and kingdom and global significance. He was implying that the great news was that God was going to have a body upon the earth, that he was going to have a community that spanned every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that this was going to be the rule of the Spirit. Now the Lord is the Spirit, Paul would later say, and he was going to have his way. He was going to manifest himself through this people, and it was a different kind of peace than the Pax Romana. Peace I give you not as the world gives. They weren't going to use weapons. They weren't going to use brute force. They weren't going to use manipulation. You know, do not be like the Gentiles who lorded over each other and call themselves your benefactors. And everything was going to be different. It was going to be service. But he envisioned salvation in terms of a corporate people. And this people was, their salvation was seen as an act moving out of the kingdoms of this world and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So when Jesus speaks on the Mount of Transfiguration to Elijah, Moses, and Abraham, He speaks to them, the literal is, about His exodus. Amen? And He dies at the Passover. So the Passover lamb, we love to emphasize that Jesus is the Passover lamb, but we fail to realize that the lamb came in order to create an exodus. The lamb came to spare people from judgment on the night when the Egyptian gods were judged so that that same night they could cross over into a promised land. In the same way, Jesus came to remove that barrier of guilt that was blocking us from trusting God and allow us then Amen. to exit the kingdoms of this world into a whole new way of living, a whole new way of relating the kingdom of the Son of His love. And that's why he says he has translated you out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Son of His love. So those, those are kingdom terms that Paul is using there. The dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And so the whole connotation, salvation was not seen or framed individualistically at all. It was seen and framed as this corporate Christ, as this body of Christ, where all believers could come and find their wholeness. Uh, and and that, that corporate Christ, that body of Christ, that church, the very word church, Jesus uses the word twice, but the word church means called out once. Every time we say the word church, we have a connotation of exodus attached to that. And so this is all tied to the idea that we must divorce the world, that we must divorce the flesh and be a spouse to another. So the gospel of the kingdom, which rendered is the good news of the kingdom, but it, he, did, he never calls it the gospel of personal exemption from God's wrath. That's what he should have called it if he was an evangelical. But he calls it the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that there is a place that there is a kingdom and it defies borders and boundaries 
It's, in, it's the kingdom of God is within you. It's a devotion that we harbor in our hearts. Amen. And it's an exodus into that kingdom. It's a salvation by exodus into that kingdom from all the rest. Um, I don't know if that answers it, but there's a lot to, to digest there. But one of the things to keep in mind is that in the same way, the word administration, if we said the administration, everybody would know that we were referring to whoever was uh, yeah, the, the presidency, the office of the presidency, right? And, and in the same way, we could say, use that word administration without that connotation. Gospel had a bigger connotation than simply good news, you know, like everybody loves to suggest. Amen. I don't know. I feel so much for this topic. I just, I just think that if we, you know, I was pointing out how thick the Old Testament is relative to the New Testament, and it really is one of those things that you feel like if you, if you knew your scriptures and were being carried along by the hope of promise, then the gospel of the kingdom is the only word that makes sense. It's the only word that should be being announced across the land. I'll just give you a, a quick example, but um, in Genesis, we start with the Lord establishing a family in a garden and telling them that they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth with the Lord's glory. So these image bearers, these ones who will reflect God, God says, well, the way that I want to be reflected or known is going to be relationally. And so I'm going to put a husband and a wife in a garden, and when they multiply, stewarding creation according to my design and pattern, according to my value and character, rightly relating one with another and walking in dependent relationship upon me, then you're going to receive my glory and emanate it out from yourselves by the way you all relate with one another. And so God lays out this plan. But then we all know what happens. Man says, well, I won't abide in this trusting relationship with God, but I'd rather seize life into my own hands. And in doing so, he grabs hold of death by the tail Amen. rather than life. And he starts to hurl himself down into brokenness and disintegration. All of a sudden now, what's the first accounts we get? Brother being rising up against brother in murder. Every bit of relationship starts to deteriorate. The land that was Eden is now a land of briars and wilderness. So you have this shift that starts to happen, this breaking down that starts to happen. It says the breakdown goes so comprehensively across the land that God says, I'm going to wash waters over the whole land. If you remember in creation, he did this once already, where waters were over, and then the Spirit of the Lord hovered over those waters and brought about creation, which God said, it's good. It's good, it's well-pleasing, it's rightly designed, it rightly fits together. Everything about it is correct. Okay, And so he says, you know what? I'm going to wash the earth with water again. And then I'm going to raise up a new creation. And who sits at an ark resting on a mountain at the end of that work? A family. A family in which he says to them these words, be fruitful, multiply, and now fill the earth. You're my image bearers, rescued out of a land of corruption. And I am going to display myself now through you. And what happens almost immediately in the story? Noah's sons come in and find him having drunk with wine. And there's this breaking down. 
And right away, the story starts taking us back in to the spiral of sin, right? And then God comes and he grabs a man, Abram, and he says, come out from Babylon and I'm going to set you apart as my own heritage, as my own um, uh, family. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to know who I am. And he teaches them how to be a father. He teaches them how to be a husband. And he takes them on this journey. And he tells them to be fruitful, multiply. And yet, they can't do it. They need a seed of promise. And so yet again, we have this anticipation starting to build in the story about how is this going to happen? How is God's seed of promise going to multiply itself across the whole earth? And we get the first connection with Isaac. It must come out of hoping against hope and believing in a resurrection from the dead. But each one of these, do you see how the story is building and building? And now all of a sudden Israel, he's taken out of the house of bondage and slavery. And how much does God appeal to them? Don't forget my loving kindness that I've extended you. Remember all that I've done. Remember your covenant vows that you made at that mountain when you committed yourself unto me. Remember that I took you up from the hand and led you out of there. It is I that taught you to walk. It is I that taught you how to love. Remember me and recall me, you know? And yet we see still yet again, God's glory is not moving across the whole earth. Even though he's commanded them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What is happening? It says, Paul, when Paul's day comes, he says, the Gentiles blaspheme God on account of you. Amen. He says, not only did you not bring the light into the nations, taking the tent pegs of God's domain and spreading it out across the whole world that it would be governed by this redeeming love. But instead of that happening, instead, all the Gentiles are more confused today than ever about who God is. You have not been my spokesman, my explanation, my exegesis of who I am. And then a man comes and he takes all of the same route of Israel. Out of Egypt, I called my son, they say about the Lord. He goes up onto the mountain and comes down appointing a 12 and bringing a new law. I mean, everything starts to unfold. Is this true Israel? Is this true promised Amen. seed? And guess what? He's got an announcement. Good news. Everything God's been trying to do since Genesis, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth is about to break upon this earth. Get your hearts right, he says. Amen. Repent. And, and what was that repentance? Everyone change the way you're doing anything crooked or twisted that would prevent you from having an ear to hear or an eye to see the reality of God's kingdom that's about to press in to this earth. And there's a coming immersion of heaven onto this earth. And he's saying, you get ready because this kingdom is coming. And now all of a sudden, all the New Testament, it starts to instruct us and in how we rightly relate with God and with one another that we might be a kingdom of priests, Amen. a holy nation, a people set apart unto God of his choice possession that would explain him to the world. And guess what? And be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now I tell you, go out into all the earth making disciples teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Amen. He says, go out there and form these communities that shape people in to the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that I have always designed and desired. Okay, so the announcement of the good news of the kingdom, it's not like, well, how does that fit in with Paul? And is that just some future day or anything? It is at the heart of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. 
Just follow me. It makes this good news. If without the death, burial, and resurrection, it makes this good news without power. Amen. All it is is telling Israel yet again, here's a kingdom handed to you. But will they be able to fulfill God's purposes? No. Not without man in the present life somehow entering into judgment now so that his sins and all of it can be completely done away with and somehow in this present life entering into a newness of life that now God could build something. Now he has the building material that are what? Putty in his hands. Because what is it really to be a new creation? Doesn't 2 Corinthians 5 tell us that it is this, to live, to do the will of God? Amen. Isn't that what it is? It's to become like the incarnated word, that word that only did whatever he heard the Father say, whatever he saw the Father doing. That's what we all become. Who is my mother? Who is my brother? But the one who does the will of God. This is the one. This is not us all being like, well, I'm going to be the one who does the will of God. Yeah, if you find the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, you will be. Because that is what changes a person into one that can be united brother to brother, sister to sister, to bring about the kingdom of God on this earth. Kingdom, by the way, is nothing more than a society ruled by a monarch. And a society is nothing more than the collection of units of families and individuals into the formation of a common agreement of good and values and purpose of life. Amen. So, amen. And you, you get what I'm saying. Amen. If I say any more, I'm going to explode. Somebody just no. sent me this Somebody just sent me this quote, and it's my dad uh, writing, and he says, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, I believe Millard Erickson, told us that the word gospel in the Greek could be better understood in its fullest and most comprehensive sense as revolution. A simple definition of revolution is an overthrow of a government or society in favor of a new system. It was closer, in fact, to a proclamation of a whole new community order of existence, a revolution in human relationships on a massive scale, not a new patch on an old piece of cloth. It entailed the entire infrastructure for new life in a new kingdom, a new container to hold new wine. It proposed nothing less than the coming of a culture of life and a counterposition to the culture ruled by self-preservation and the fear of death. This would not be a kingdom with geographical boundaries, but it would surely have boundaries and delineations, only they would be spiritual. These would assume the form of a network body of very carefully composed human relationships ruled by a transcendent love moving through this form of relationships. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Do you have another one that's short? I had one last one. Okay, let's do it. I think it's important maybe just to put a cap on this, and it should be short because I really do think we've covered it. But, um, you know, you, you, we've made a lot of, uh, we've talked a lot about obedience and righteousness, and you just talked about living in a certain way to bring this kingdom to fruition um, and repentance and so on and so forth. And I think that one of the major objections or questions or concerns that we've gotten or that I've gotten has been around, do you feel... Um, like, for example, if I have to obey the gospel, if I have to live in a certain way, if I have to do these things, are my merits now being added to what is required to be made right with God? <laughs> no. Um, there are all kinds of felonious assumptions in modern justification by faith 
but one of them is that God is solely responsible for justifying righteousness. Righteousness that justifies us from hell. But that he is somehow less responsible for sanctifying righteousness. This is erroneous. I don't have the time to go into all the scriptures. But for every scripture that emphasizes justifying righteousness as the sole activity of God, I can show you one that emphasizes sanctifying righteousness as the sole activity of God. What am I saying? If God is the one who sanctifies and God is the one who empowers obedience, then we don't get credit for any of it. We simply have to walk in submission and obedience to Him, faith in Him. And if He empowers us to do these things, then He gets the credit. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who enables us even to speak, where He would say, it will not be you speaking. So to credit human effort with the work of God is plagiarism. It's, it's false. We can't take credit for what God would do in us. But if we have an abiding relationship of trust with Him, He will be working His work. He will be working in us to will and do His good pleasure. If that's not happening, it indicates a breakdown in relationship. So what is necessary for a saving relationship? Faith. Faith is not stagnant. Faith is active. Faith is an unfolding walk. It is not a point in time. And so, simply put, all of it has to be the work of God. We can't be able to take credit for any of it. We can only have one boast, as he said in Jeremiah, that they know me, that, that we have come to know the Lord. And Amen. we're hopefully growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That would be a great lead-in to well, we've gone over a lot. We've said a lot. We had to jam a lot into a little bit of time. I know it's been a lot of time, but it's been as little as we could, we could squeeze it into. Amen. Well, God bless you all. I hope you'll send your questions. If anybody has any questions, uh, make sure that they send them. Um, I'm sure some would be more comfortable talking about us than asking us the questions themselves, but that just shows that they're not of the light, or else they would come into the light that it may Amen. be clearly seen that what they do is done in God. So God bless you all. We'll see you next week.